I'm Dr. Jill Wiener. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice, to provide a nuanced, honest, and educational examination of systemic racism. I am so excited to have Jamila Plez here with me today. She is a nurse. She's an RN in labor and delivery. She has, um, in addition to that, which is an incredible enough job, she is the founder of Her Birthright, which is a national nursing initiative that bridges gaps in maternal health um, outcomes for women of color. And also she's the founder of Listen, which is another, um, I guess, sub, sub organization or offshoot of that. Uh, and so she's going to talk about that today and, and wherever else our conversation goes. So Jamila, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to chat with me. Thank you, Jill, for the warm introduction and inviting me to be a part of your podcast today. I'm so excited to have you here. And Jamila and I met, uh, we were on a, a panel together talking about um, racial disparities in, in uh, healthcare. And I just was loved everything that you were talking about. So I'm, I'm so glad I kind of hunted you down a little bit and, <laughs> and got you to come and talk with me. So thank you. So uh, Jamila, can you talk a little bit about how you got, maybe how you got started in, in, in nursing and labor and delivery and, and, and how, how race has, and systemic racism has informed your journey through your, your education and, and your um, bedside interactions with your patients? So I will give you the condensed story before, um, becoming a nurse, I was actually a real estate broker. Oh, wow. And it was after the birth of my second son, like immediately um, in postpartum, I made the decision that it was a good time to go to nursing school. So it was 2007, the housing market had just come like crashing down. So um, it was just bursting. And my postpartum nurse, actually was a real estate bro broker that I had a pending contract with. And I just remember watching her take care of me and being in awe because I knew her as this phenomenal, um, high producing real estate agent. Mm -hmm. And she told me, you know, my mom told me never to give up my nursing license. So I work as a weekend nurse and it's something I enjoy, but you know, working at Northwestern gives me the benefits that I need and real estate is like, you know, my baby and my primary love, but I still enjoy what I'm doing here. And I only have to work like four times a month. And it was just in that moment, like I knew that I wanted to take care of people. I grew up with my oldest brother being in a wheelchair and I was his caregiver early on. So unfortunately he was shot in his neck walking home from school as a teenager. And I remember going to the ER to see him for the first time and just being like in the emergency room. I was always fascinated. I would love to go to clinic appointments with my grandmother. And I remember when she had surgery, even at the like young age of 12, I wanted to pack like the wound that was healing and I would like measure it and I would make sure it didn't have a smell. Like there was always this fascination. I love that. You were yeah. like always in there. Like I have a, a cousin who's a nurse and she's like, I just love the like, the, like the, the woundier, the better. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's the critical thinking skills of it. And then the hand, like critical thinking, yeah. um, the interaction with the families. Um, and I'm pretty much like, your cousin like sometimes you're just like huh how can I fix this how can I help and I just feel like with nursing like you see the direct impact and I'm not sure if providers always get to experience that unfortunately like but we see the impact that we have like immediately um, and I would say with the systemic racism like I remember being in undergrad and originally I wanted to go into medicine. Like I wanted to be a doctor. 
and I was in the chemistry class. And I'm going to be honest, I wasn't prepared coming from an inner city school in Chicago high school. My high school was phenomenal. However, I didn't realize how unprepared I was until I started taking the advanced level chemistry classes. And I remember my professor saying, you know, you, you may want to try your shot at something else. You may want to try like psychology, um, you know, you barely pass the first exam. It's only going to get more challenging. So I just feel like that discouragement from the very onset, like tutoring wasn't offered. It was just like, hey, maybe this may not be for you. I hear that from almost everyone I interview uh, who is a, a person of color that they had. And I'm, I interview some like really, really high performing people like you and and they've all had these experiences where their professor was like, mm, maybe not, maybe medicine's not for you. Maybe not law school. It's so, it's so amazing to me how pervasive that is and how common that is. And also that, that every person I spoke to still, still was able to, to continue and to persevere. I mean, you found a different career than medicine, but honestly, I, that, that's a, a blessing, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, that's a whole other topic, but okay. So continue. So, so you, you had that experience with your freshman chemistry teacher. Yeah. And, um, so needless to say, like I, I passed chemistry, of course. I mean, I was so determined. I found tutors. I watched videos. Like, I mean, I would wake up early in the morning to just like, I had to like learn the basics and it was like self-taught, but then I, I worked with a tutor like every day. I was just determined simply because he thought that I couldn't do it. It's like, okay, um, let me really try hard. But then I learned towards the finals that a lot of the other students had these advanced calculators and they were pre-programmed with formulas. And I was like, okay, I should just go buy this expensive calculator too. And that was like the game changer too. Like, so something even as simple as that, like, we didn't necessarily use the TI-80 calculators in high school. And so here it is, I'm failing or barely passing because I didn't even have the right tools. Mm -hmm. I'm like memorizing formulas. I'm like doing everything by hand. I just had a scientific calculator, but not like wait, where I can, you know, plot and graph and put in formulas and just recall them when I need them. So, I mean, I would say it definitely starts with our education system because I went to a really a selective enrollment high school in Chicago. I mean, a very great school, but honestly, in hindsight, it's relative because some of my friends went to a more diverse school that was selective enrollment too, but they didn't have the same struggles that I had and they were at schools like the University of Michigan and they were at Stanford and it's just like, oh no, like this was a review of what I learned in high school. Wow. So you're almost set up to be behind, unfortunately. Um, and definitely I've seen a lot in nursing at the bedside. Um, I really didn't experience any like racism in nursing school. That was like a phenomenal experience. But working at the bedside, I saw the difference in care, honestly. So if you had, um, sometimes we would hear like, oh, it's a VIP patient. What's a VIP patient? We should have the same gold standard yeah. for everyone. Um, so sometimes if administrators or some of the physicians were delivering their baby, it was like the room was cleaned twice. Um, I remember being in one birth and the patient, a white patient, was requesting for warm towels to be laid on her perineal area because studies show that you're less likely to have like this large laceration vaginal tearing. Oh, wow. And I was surprised that her doctor was so like accommodating. Like, you know, this doctor I think highly of, but I've never seen her exude so much patience that I was actually confused during the delivery. She's like, oh, I need warm, warm, sterile water. And I was like, excuse me? 
And she's like, I, I need warm, stale water. Like, I'm going to, you know, soak towels and apply them to her perineum. But as a bedside nurse, like, when the mom is getting ready to push, you're not really – you really shouldn't leave outside of the laboring room. So I called the charge nurse and was like, hey, I'm in my delivery, but I need warm saline. And she was like, what are you asking for again? And yeah. I just laughed. I'm like, we need warm saline. I was like, you know, we only have it in the OR. Can someone go and grab it for me? And she's like, oh, is everything okay in there? I was like, it's fine. But I feel like those are, I mean, it's just a small example of sometimes the difference in, in treatment. Of course, I've seen, you know, when the mom is in pain and when it's an African-American mom, but sometimes the anesthesiologists are not as sensitive, not as warm with the bedside manners or, you know, they'll explain, but it's just that lack of compassion and like empathy. Yeah. And then just next door, it's like, oh, this is what we're gonna do. And um, what are you having? Oh, it's so amazing to meet the baby today. Not as like, again, like the, the empathy is not, always there. Um, one case that I was really appalled by, and I actually took it to the CEO of a hospital that I was working at as a traveling nurse, is that I had a Hispanic mom. She only spoke Spanish, non-speaking English, and it was at change of shift. So I'm an AM nurse. I was, it was like a 725 delivery, and it was her fourth baby. She had delivered three babies vaginally, uncomplicated rather quickly and the provider after pushing twice was like oh just call the NICU um, and put a vacuum on the table so it became a vacuum assist delivery where this mom really didn't even have a fair chance at pushing like she pushed only three times yeah and I really just in that moment it's like you sometimes can feel powerless like why are we using the vacuum when she's pushing fine? We only need like a few more pushes and I'm confident baby will come because her body's done it three times already. Yeah. But it's just that sense of urgency and, you know, I need to get to the clinic that in that moment, the provider chose to use a, a vacuum. And then this poor woman who doesn't speak English, she just wants to deliver her baby. She's trusting that she's not even really aware of you know some of the complications that could have happened with using the vacuum vacuum assist delivery and is that something that requires informed consent using the vacuum or is that yes it does require just like verbal consent like you don't have to do a sign consent and it was explained rather quickly i don't think she processed like exactly what was going to happen or the complications that could result as a um, from using the vacuum. It was just, you know, I'm pushing, it's intense. I just want to meet my baby and I'm trusting my doctor. This is my doctor. This is, you know, who I've built a, a relationship with. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately that's not an uncommon practice. Right, right. So I think back to my med school days, My I used to actually want to be a, an obstetrician and doing deliveries. I mean, it would be me and my first year resident. I was a third year med student and my first year, like an intern delivering a lot of these babies. And there was not an attending around like, and this was a County hospital. So it was like, okay. Cause it was our training hospital, you know, but then if you were going to do it at like, like Emory or one of the like fancier hospitals, or I'm sure some of the private hospitals around here, that would never happen. Like you would never just be like a med student and an intern. And so there is this sense, I look back and I'm like, whoa, that's, I mean, you have to train, you have to be able to do stuff on your own, but like sewing up an episiotomy with just me and my intern, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm sure she didn't know that well what she was doing. I mean, it was probably eight months into her residency. So um, it is interesting how, how we kind of take for, gra for granted what what people should and could accept and, and speak up for themselves. I, 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 it's pretty crazy. So um, so what what 
how did you t tell us a little bit about your birth, uh, her birthright, I'm sorry, um, and, and what that is and, and how you got started with it. And, and I, I know that you had some live events planned that I'm assuming are, are not happening now. Maybe they're going well, to I actually um, was able to curate some events just online that's been very successful. So her birthright, her birthright came about after, after reading and experiencing actually a, a maternal death, right? So in the US right now, unfortunately, black women are two to three times more likely to die from a pregnancy complication. And if you're a college educated black woman, you're still at risk. You're four, I mean, you're five times more likely to experience a pregnancy complication. And so witnessing firsthand like the disparities with African-American moms mm -hmm. and then reading the data and just, I remember experiencing um, a black maternal death for the first time. Like you just never forget. And in that moment, I just realized women need to learn to speak up for themselves. And especially in the birthing process, like it's not a passive sport but I believe in the past, it was just like, oh, you just go in, you have the baby, you trust your doctor, you let them just touch you and direct the plan of care and you don't have to verbalize how you're feeling or what makes you uncomfortable or even just your own birthing preferences. And so um, I trained at the University of Chicago and at the University of Chicago, I will tell you that they're really advanced in regards to research and early detection of preeclampsia, hypertension, disorders, and even in the event of an emergency, we literally have a touchscreen keypad so you can rece receive help like right away. Yeah. But when I started to work as a traveling nurse, I realized that some of the other hospitals did not um, treat hypertension in black women the same. And that was, you know, alarming for me because we have these statistics and we know that black women, just being a black woman is one of the risk factors for developing preeclampsia. And if it's untreated, there's just a cascade of things that can happen to mom. Can you and so, quickly explain for people listening who aren't medical, oh. how, so hypertension is high blood pressure. How does that relate to preeclampsia and eclampsia and, and, and what just look a little bit on what that means to people. So preeclampsia is basically just hypertensive disorder in pregnancy. Um, but the danger with preeclampsia is that it can lead into like eclampsia, which will put mom at risk for having seizures. It can then develop into um, the help syndrome, which is meaning that mom loses the ability to really like clot her blood like platelets, her platelets can drop leading to a medical emergency and result in, in death. So you want to identify and you know early diagnosis so that you can really manage and avoid like it developing into eclampsia and then later help syndrome. Okay, great, thank you, thank you. I think that will be, that'll be helpful, Help, good refresher for me because I, <laughs> been practicing medicine for five years so um awesome okay so so you were noticing they didn't have the the, the screening or the the act they weren't as well, active I would say that it was just very relaxed if you had a mom to come into triage and her blood pressure was you know 140 over 95 it's like it's mildly elevated yes but she has symptoms of having a lingering headache um edema swelling in the feet right upper quadrant pain we need to draw labs these labs need to be drawn like immediately yeah. or i remember in one delivery um the delivery was uncomplicated and mom's blood pressure was fine but the moment the the placenta was delivered um i'm starting to check her blood pressures every 15 minutes the first one was like 230 over like 110 i'm like wait this is just wrong so I deflate the cuff and I, you know, readjust it. I put it back on. I take the second pressure. And again, her pressure is maybe like 200 over 90 at this point. So I tell the doctor, hey, these pressures are real. And then I start to ask questions like, mom, have you had any headaches? Have you been having blurry vision? 
And she's like, oh, I was seeing spots all day yesterday. I'm like, that's not normal. Mm. And so she was an induction. I um, received her as a patient when it was just time for her to push. So I'm now at this point, I'm like, let me investigate. Let me go back to her labs. And her labs show, I mean, showed that upon admission, she had preeclampsia. And this patient was there for 48 hours un, with no medical treatment. And I remember the doctor looked at me and he was like, well, the baby is out. I said, yes, but we need to start her on magnesium. She can't go up to postpartum right away. She needs IV push labetalol. And so in that moment, I was just thinking like, what about those new nurses who don't have that type of experience or who are not as comfortable like assisting with directing the plan of care, what could have happened to that mom? Like that mom could have easily become one of our statistics mm -hmm. for a failure to treat and diagnose early. I mean, she, upon her admission lapse, it showed that she had preeclampsia, yeah. but it went unnoticed until after delivery. Wow. So how does, tell, what does birthright, her birthright do to, um, what, what are you, what is your organization doing to um, make those changes and to help raise awareness and advocacy? So her birthright um, has been doing a lot of digital campaigns. I find that in the delivery room, moms are attached to their cell phone. Mm. They're on social media. And so um, I started just teaching, creating like chat and choose. I had one in-person event before um, COVID happened and it was very successful. Um, 65 moms of color showed up and I had um, Dr. Rana, which is like one of the leading experts on preeclampsia. She came in and she spoke, but it was created not like a lecture. It was a chat and shoot. We provided lunch and we decorated the room. Like it was more just a warm environment where yeah. women can feel safe and they can ask questions. And then the icebreaker, everyone had to write a question, like one question that you would be afraid to ask your doctor. Oh, and then yeah. we had a panel of nurses that would answer the questions. Like how soon should I have sex after having the baby? Or is it okay to eat an edible while I'm pregnant? I mean, just like questions that you wouldn't necessarily feel safe or you know embarrassed to ask your doctor. So um, her birthright is really focused on the awareness part and patient advocacy. I do a lot of private teaching um, where it's online right now, but I'm teaching in private groups and just on one, like how to speak up, what happens if you feel ignored in your birthing process and what to expect. I'm learning that most women don't know, even as simple as like when you're scheduled for an induction, they think it's a fast process. Mm. And it's just like, no, we're forcing your body into labor. It can actually go up to three days if you're a first time mom. Wow. And it's just like, even that knowing going into it, this could be a three day process. It's like, I think it sets them up to one, be engaged, but two, to trust the process. Because again, like within inductions, it's not trial and error, but it is, it's a process. Like we're forcing your body to go into labor versus spontaneous labor. I am working on right now um, a virtual summit for Black maternal health. It's, it's a lot of Black providers that I'm lining up to speak. And I think this is important because in some areas, you may never encounter a Black provider. Mm -hmm. And I think it's relatability, right? We relate to people that, that look like us initially. And I think just the presence of being able to ask questions from a provider that that's invested and and look like you so that again the goal is to um teach patient advocacy like you can speak up what happens if you are concerned about this lingering headache and blurry vision and you don't understand your labs it's like how do i escalate my concerns and if i'm being ignored by my provider what do i do like most women didn't even know like 
you can choose your provider the same way you choose your employer and your spouse. Like you can Google, you can ask for referrals and in early pregnancy, if you don't feel that you're being heard and the provider and like you and your provider just don't have good communication, you can, you can switch providers and it can still be safe. Like you're not married to that doctor as long as you're switching care before third trimester. And women are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had that option. Well, of course you do. You don't have to stay married to that provider if you don't feel that this provider is listening or is you know, more gentle birth friendly. You can, you can go to another provider within your network. I wonder also for patients who are uninsured, like I'm just thinking about the clinics that I was at, like we would be seeing someone you know, I'd be in the resident clinic, just like prenatal clinic. Like you come, whoever comes through is who, whoever you happen to see. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about uninsured patients. What's it like for them? I think it's very difficult, honestly, because right now in Chicago, we're facing like a maternal desert because of COVID. A lot of the hospitals are um, closing the maternity wards. They were converted into COVID units. And so we get a lot of unregistered patients. And I always you know, I try to extend more compassion and kindness because I just couldn't imagine not receiving prenatal care or walking into a hospital, going into labor, and it's this team that you've never met. But also in the demographics where you live, this is the only hospital of choice. Like there, you have no other choices. Yeah. And so um, I try to just tell my moms, like, there are so many clinics, like you said, like, if you don't have insurance, there are sliding scale fees, you, you, you need to have prenatal appointment, I mean, a prenatal appointment, you need prenatal care, you want those initial labs drawn, you want that initial ultrasound, because once you walk into labor and delivery with no labs, we know any, we don't know anything about you. Yeah. So we have to draw labs, we have to get an ultrasound, and it just delays again, like being able to treat it immediately. I recently had a, a mom who, she had scant prenatal care, so she had established care at a clinic. However, she wasn't comfortable with like the telehealth appointments and appointments that were pushed back, and so she just really honestly didn't follow up after like her first couple of visits. And her dating she was unsure, but she was actually in labor preterm. And dating is very important because we need to have the NICU involved. We need to know, like, you know, according to this ultrasound, the baby is only a, a little over 500 pounds. I mean, 500 grams. Like, do you really want interventions done? Um, are you sure that this is the date? But in her case, it worked out well. Like, when the baby came out, clearly this baby was like a 28-weeker versus a 24-weeker. Yeah. The baby was almost two pounds and, you know, the baby had great reflexes. We just like, the room went up in cheering because the baby just weighed. And we're like, in this case, it was a better expected outcome than we had prepared for. But that's rare. Yeah. She, her dating was way off, like, this baby was a 28-weeker and baby has a battle, but we know, like, baby was looking good coming out versus a 24-weeker where it may have not been as, as, as desirable. So something as simple as that prenatal appointments are so, so vital and so key, even if it's, it's scant, at least give us, we can have, have a baseline, like, knowledge of what's going on with this mom in pregnancy. So that's gonna be like an even further setback for, for any, anyone who's uninsured, which is gonna be a higher per percentage of black and brown women. And then there's this, then there's even worse outcomes, e even for people who are super well educated, it's happening, but then this is yet another issue. And then of course the job loss and people losing their insurance during COVID, um, losing that, maybe if they did have that access to care, then losing that. So this is just such a huge public health crisis on so many levels. Tell, tell us about LISTEN. What, what is, um, how does that further? So LISTEN. In addition to her birth rate. 
Yeah, Listen is her birthright's first campaign that's launching this fall in October. And Listen is a framework that I developed for providers and nurses, anyone that's a part of the healthcare team taking care of women of color. And Listen stands for AL leaning lean into cultural sensitivity. I like um, identify your own implicit biases. S support patient preferences. T treat all patients with respect. E encourage nurse advocacy. And E normalize all birthing experiences. Um, I believe that this framework is really, really, honestly simple but I think it's gonna help us to turn the needle in the right direction when caring for moms of color. Because after researching like a lot of the headlines of um, black women that's passed away, unfortunately, while giving birth, there's this common thread that there was a failure to listen. Mm -hmm. So classic example is like Serena Williams. She verbalized complaints that she was having a hard time breathing. Um, she had an emergency C-section with her beautiful daughter, Olympia. But after the C-section, she had a hard time breathing. And initially, her nurse told her, oh, it's just the pain medication I gave you. But Serena being aware that she had a history of blood clots in her lungs previously was relentless. No, I want a CAT scan done of my lungs because something just doesn't feel right. Like I'm, I'm having a hard time breathing despite what the monitor is saying, like I feel it. And so finally an ultrasound was ordered of her legs. She kept saying, I'm having a hard time breathing, but an ultrasound was ordered. When that showed up nothing, then finally the CAT scan was done of her lungs and it showed she had several small clots forming in her lungs and you know, the heparin drip was started but had Serena not spoken up and been diligent about what she felt was happening with her body, someone as prominent as Serena Williams with, I mean, clearly money isn't an issue for her. She could have, we could have lost her. I mean, it was her awareness of her body and being able to advocate for herself from knowing her body and her previous medical history that she was able to be involved in a plan of care and to just be persistent. Like, I'm, I know something is happening. I need a CAT scan because that was what she had before. So I always think about what about those women who, like you said, they're, they don't have the health literacy. They're not as in tune with their body. They don't know what test to ask for. Like, is that a part of, I question, is that a part of the reason that the statistics are so disheartening. Mm -hmm. If we can just pause and really activate, like, listen, like listening, I, love that. I believe that we can really just start bridging the gap and at least improve early detect detection for complications. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar, familiar with Amber Isaac. Mm -mm. Um, so Amber Isaac made headlines recently because she was unpleased with the prenatal care that she was receiving at a hospital in New York. And so her last tweet was, before going into labor, I can't wait to, um, to give the tell-off story about my incompetent doctors at whatever hospital. And unfortunately, she passed away from a, a childbirth complication. She did not live to tell the story. And this is a healthy, beautiful, I believe she was 26 years old, um, but she had a, it was like so many threads on Twitter, how she was just disappointed in the prenatal care that she was receiving. And again, she would post things like, they're just not listening to me. And so again, I, um, from reading all of this and then just my own patient experience being at the bedside, I'm like, we really have to become sensitive to, to listening. I think there's a thin line, like, you know, with pregnancy, it's easy to say, oh, it's just pregnancy. You're gonna be uncomfortable. But it's like really digging deeper and listening to 
what the mom is stating and presenting, the signs and symptoms that she's presenting. I don't know if you're familiar with the Kira Johnson case as well. Mm -mm, I don't. So, I haven't followed a lot of the. Yeah. Cases. So Kira's Kira Johnson. Um, her case has gone national. Her husband is doing some phenomenal work, but Kira is African American woman that was affluent, extremely beautiful, jovial. She spoke seven different languages. They chose Cedar Sinai Hospital in California because. Um, they just wanted the best possible care. So they chose Cedar sinai and Kira was scheduled for a repeat C-section, a scheduled case, no complications were foreseen. But after the delivery of her baby, second son via C-section, um, her husband started noticing that in her urinary catheter, that there was, the urine was blood tinged. So he, you know, told the nurse like, hey, I'm concerned like the urine looks blood tinged and it was just ignored like it persisted for like hours like she was just ignored with the signs and symptoms and so finally six hours later um there was a ct scan ordered and i think like the story goes that it wasn't it was ordered stat but not performed stat hours later it was performed and it showed that Kira was having abdominal bleeding. Like there was like three liters of blood in her abdomen cavity after surgery. So she was rushed into a second surgery and her husband was told, hey, this, should, this is not uncommon. You'll see her again in 15 minutes. And he, he reports that Kira was like, baby, I'm just really scared. But because it was emergent, he wasn't allowed to go into the second procedure and needless to say, like she crashed and coded and they lost her. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah. Um, so there's this track record of, again, women and especially black women feeling like I'm verbalizing what I'm feeling, but I'm just not being heard until it becomes extremely emergent. So I'm really passionate and excited to launch Listen. Um, and the target is to I'm already partnering with um, or having discussions with um, providers in Pittsburgh and Florida, Maryland, and then ideally launching at the University of Chicago. That's incredible. Congratulations. It's so, it's so exciting, um, all the work that you're doing. And it's so, I mean, there's so much, I think, much more public awareness of this. And this is the perfect time for you to be doing this work. It's so needed. Um, how, what do you think about like doulas and, and, and midwives and like, like a less traditional doctor path? Because I, I myself like have obviously was a doctor and then I left medicine and went down the meditation teacher track. And I'm like, I'm, I'm 43 at this point. I'm not having kids, but like, I'm like, at this point, I feel like I might try to have a child, like in a field with like, like, you know, like I might go as untraditional as possible, but, but I'm like, I'm say this all tongue in cheek, but obviously I'd be high risk, but I, I hear so much about doulas and how they're such great advocates for, for patients that aren't able to speak up for themselves. And I know a lot of practices are, are um, adding midwives. What, what's your experience with that? So I want, um, I'm an advocate of doulas. I, they're trained to be labor support, right? And so with the labor and delivery nurse, we're assigned more than one patient. Like, so we try, of course, to, you know, be there to support the patient guide in making decisions, um, explaining what's happening. But with a doula, you have undivided attention. And it's like any coaching, like you have someone that can really coach you along that's not a part of the medical team so that you can really just um, like own your own voice. And with doulas, they're taught comfort measures. And comfort measures, if you're going down the path like, hey, I really just wanna like have a natural birth. I want this natural birth experience. A doula is a must have. Um, because you need someone that can, you know, help you coach you breathing through the contractions. They're very familiar and strong in knowing different positions. Like if labor stalls, they know different positions that can manipulate and help um, move the pelvis and get the cervix to start making changes. And all the research shows that like, if you have a doula, 
you're like three to five times less likely to, to desire an epidural because again, you have that undivided attention, someone that's well-versed in the birthing process and the like physical mechanics of the birthing process that can coach you along. Um, I'm in favor of midwives too. I believe that their approach is much more gentle than most OB providers. Mm-hmm. Um, they just have a real a, like patience and a real respect for the birthing process. Um, you know, I'm always excited at work when I have a midwife patient because it's just that nurse advocacy, like when I'm communicating with a midwife, like I know that she's more likely to like listen to me and to take in my considerations. Like, hey, I think that, you know, we shouldn't start Pitocin right away on this mom. How do you feel about letting her walk for two hours and let's see if her body kicks in on itself? They're taught to respect the birthing process and more natural interventions. So it's, it's rare that you would get resistance Whereas a OBGYN may say, oh, well, I know the baby looks great, but I'm uncomfortable with the baby being off the monitor for two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently uh, on this Zoom call for a symposium for birth equity. And I was just shocked that in the US midwives, black midwives only make up like 2% of the population. Um, a lot of room so, I'm sorry, I can hear you, Jill. There's a lot of room for growth there. I mean, that's, that's a, how important do you think it is for, because I mean, I've talked about this before on, on, on these videos, but the white gaze, G-A-Z-E, white gaze is like this notion that like kind of everything in our society, it's not even a notion, it's like kind of a reality, is, is white is the norm and then anything outside that is going to be the ethnic hair care, ethnic food, this kind of thing. And so white people are used to looking around and seeing most people looking like them. Um, people of color are not. And so how, how important do you think that is, Jamila? You know, for you, when you're, you're a mom of three, so like for you, I don't know if, if, you're, if your um, providers were um, people of color or if they were white or, or what that experience was like, how important do you think that is for expectant moms and families? You know, honestly, I think that it's very important that um, even if your provider does not look like you, I believe that there should be someone, a part of the care team that looks like you. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, with my first, with my daughter, and I won't tell my age here, but mm-hmm. I was in college when I had her. And so I didn't know much. I didn't know to research providers. I didn't know to, um, oh, you can choose a black doctor. Like I didn't. I didn't know anything. It was just like, hey, I'm gonna go to this clinic that accepts my insurance and um, I will have my baby at the university hospital. Um, but the one thing that I do recall, and especially now that I work at that same hospital that I delivered her at 20 years ago, um, I wasn't told that the provider that I was gonna receive prenatal care from, she wouldn't be the provider to deliver my baby. Mm. So it was, um, you know, a clinic that was government funded in the community, reputable clinic. However, the providers really don't deliver at the hospital um, that the moms are assigned to. And so again, fast forward 20 years recently at work, it was a couple and I had met them at a community engagement event and they were disappointed that there was no black providers on staff. And I was just like, how did you miss this? Like, I know that your provider that you received prenatal care from was an African-American nurse practitioner. Mm -hmm. However, she didn't explain that once you are admitted into labor, basically it's gonna be the residents that's managing you. And that day we just didn't have a resident of color on the the floor. Um, And it just created a huge hurdle like, I mean, the husband was really bothered and upset. Like, he wanted his provider to look like him. Yeah. Um, and it created these barriers. And unfortunately, some emergencies happened and they refused care because it was this mistrust yeah. from the onset. And so 
for me doing work in the community, it was a teachable moment. Like as a system, how did we fail this, this couple? What could we have done differently? Because something so simple as knowing like, hey, I was compliant, I got prenatal care. I love my provider that I received prenatal care from, but not knowing that this would be, that this provider wouldn't be available or anyone from this team wouldn't be available on the big day of having the baby. And it's like, how does that happen? And we're in 2020, right? Like in, you know, nine, uh, 2000, no, 1999, I remember going into labor, but I didn't care as much. You know, I was young and I didn't have any complications and I was already eight centimeters. So I just want to meet the baby. I just want this whole process to be over. Yeah. It wasn't a big deal to me, but for some people who have established rapport with their providers of color, to not know that you're not actually going to be there to deliver my baby. It, pre it presented some, some unnecessary hurdles and it truly affected the outcome. The outcome was not, um, was not desirable, to be honest. Like the baby had a lot of complications and they refused a C-section because again, they were mistrusting of the system Yeah, and the baby did not live. Oh no. Yeah. So I mean, I always like to walk a day in someone else's shoes when I'm interacting with the patients. Mm -hmm. And this couple, um, I just remember the provider saying like, oh, well, they're just militant and um, they're refusing everything. And it's almost like a cult-like practice. And it was just like, no, we're in the height of George Floyd. Ahmaud Aubrey, there's so much racial tension that's been to the forefront mm -hmm. and they actually received prenatal care. They even attended one of my community events before COVID. So they were invested in having a healthy outcome. Yeah. However, there's just so much mistrust with the medicine and the African-American community. They sought care from a provider that looked like them, but for whatever reason, the miscommunication with not knowing that the provider wouldn't be present at the time of birth. Like, they're just like, it's all these white doctors. Yeah. Like there's not even a black doctor here. Yeah. And, you know, I was just like, okay, you're correct. There's not a black provider here. And I actually met you at the clinic event. I know that I'm confident in our team. No, there's no one that looks like you or me. However, you're not even assigned to me, but I'm invested in making sure that you feel comfortable and that you receive good care today. And this is what's going on with your baby. And he was just adamant, like, I can't trust what you guys are saying. I want a provider that looks like me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how do we overcome that? We, we didn't have a provider that looked like him. Right. It's so hard. And I think like for as, as a white skinned previous healthcare professional, like, instead of getting defensive, and instead of being like, they, 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 they don't understand how we know what's best for them, taking that moment to be like, huh, let me find out what this is all about. Like, what has their experience been? Where might this be coming from? And, and not understanding this history of distrust between black community and the, uh, the medical community. It's totally, totally reasonable that this mistrust is there and there becomes this like pointing fingers and, and othering instead of just like taking a moment and being like, maybe there's something we could be doing differently. I think that's just such a, something that really, it really, really needs to be um, that moment of like, this is going to become a showdown. How can the healthcare professionals de-escalate that and get in the other person's shoes like you're saying and and not have it be you know like like at least make an attempt and 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 see that I think that would help so much in so many cases and I think honestly because we're prepared to act in so many emergencies like that sometimes as providers we just forget what that can feel like for the patient in that moment Mm -hmm. For an example, for an emergency C-section, we literally have a call light. We'll hit the call light priority one C-section. And then it's like at least 15 people running in 
the room, all gowned up, to roll this mom to the OR. And it's like, are we like, we know that it's urgent and we have minutes to get the baby out, but what can we do to make every mom feel more comfortable with the situation? Because it could be overwhelming. And if you already have a sense of fear, because you've read all these horrible headlines, Black women are more likely to die giving birth. Black women are more likely to have a C-section. Black women are more likely to have a preterm baby. You're already scared. And it's like a level, like your defense is already up. Like, can I trust them? Are they just, you know, are they doing what's best for me in this moment? Or are we in a rush to just like get this baby out? And then the baby's born in that, in that stress mode that that also i'm i'm i mean i don't know if they specifically have or can even study that but like that cannot be good for the baby itself to be born in that like sympathetic overdrive stress moment that's already scary enough like you're saying um well well, there's so much to think about what how I, I, we, we are out of time, so um, I would love for you to share um, with anyone listening how they can learn more about you, if you have social media, they can follow you, um, and how they can get involved with Her Birthright and listen and support you, um, potentially make donations if it's a nonprofit. What, can you yes. share how people can pick up what you're putting down? So my website is www.herbirthright.com, and there's definitely a donation tab and I'm actually going to be posting some events. Um, also, what else do I want to tell you? Oh, IG, Instagram is her birthright. And also on Facebook, I have my name, Jamila Plez, but also her birthright is active. Great. I'm just writing these down here. Um, Excellent. Excellent. Well, your work you're doing is so important. And, um, and unfortunately, fortunately, and unfortunately, the times have brought attention to it. And um, thank you for doing the work that you do uh, to, to support and advocate for moms um, who often don't have anyone else to, to do that and to help people with their self-efficacy and, and empowering them to, to, to speak up for themselves, um, which is, is hard to do for so many reasons when you're about to deliver a baby or in the process of it. So thank you again, Jamila Plez, uh, a nurse, um, founder of Her Birthright, um, just doing such amazing work. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. Thank you, Jill.